they're an extremely silly thing that I remember at the time going like, there's no way they're going to let me put this in the game. It's very dumb. But <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss storytelling with my guest, Kim Belair. My name is Kim Belair. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Sweet Baby Inc., where we handle narrative development. So in my day-to-day, I'm a writer and narrative designer in the games industry. Kim has worked on a wide range of games, from huge franchises like the recent Assassin's Creed Valhalla and the upcoming Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, to smaller, more unique titles like Neocab and Goodbye Volcano High. Our conversation starts with Assassin's Creed, as Kim talks me through what it's like to work on a series with more than a decade of history, and how she contributed to what makes this latest entry different. Don't worry, no spoilers. And then we dig into some broader questions about the work of writing video games, how it differs across games and teams, the role of a narrative development company like Sweet Baby, and Kim's hopes for the future of storytelling in games. So I'm sure that there will be people listening who don't have a strong grasp on the distinction between a writer and a narrative designer when it comes to games. And I'm sure this is something that you get asked a lot. So how do you usually explain it to people? So the way that I generally explain the difference between writing and narrative design is that writing is kind of the the actual wording of the things that we do, the expression of the story, right? It's it's the way that we want the characters to speak, the way that we want the world to sound, stuff like that. And the narrative design for me is how that story is expressed by the game's mechanics. So how the things that you do in the game help to shape the player's understanding of the story. The thing with narrative design, though, is that it's a relatively new term in like the mainstream, as in like an actual job title, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's still kind of being defined where I find that on different projects, my expectations as a narrative designer will even be different from game to game. Do you find that you have to ask more questions than you might otherwise for different roles when you're interviewing for roles? Like, what do you actually mean by this? Absolutely, yes. Because sometimes it's like, for our narrative designers, we do expect a certain amount of writing. Or for our narrative designers, we don't expect anything. Sometimes narrative designers are closer on certain projects to, like, level designers. I know that for myself, when I was on Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I worked with this great guy named David Bowl, who was a quest designer. Mm. And very much for him, it was kind of... the bridging the gap between level design and narrative design. It was really interesting. You know, we kind of figure it out as we go. And I think, especially in like narrative games, there's so much interest in telling different kinds of stories and, and telling bigger and, and or deeper stories that I think we're going to see a lot of changes in, in how we express that. Yeah, as game studios take the writing and the narrative increasingly seriously, do you think that we will see even more job titles that fall under that umbrella? And what do you think they might be? I'm starting to see more even like as in story lead versus lead writer who are two people working together to maintain the integrity of story versus the integrity of the writing versus, you know, the narrative director who might be above both of those people and kind of like overall making sure that all the cross-functional teams are working together. And so I think what I'd love to see more, and I'm starting to do this kind of work myself, is like specific character work or, you know, hiring on certain kinds of people or certain kinds of contractors or or certain kinds of writers to kind of take a new perspective and build out certain aspects of the game or certain characters and almost like getting more and more granular. Like I think um, a lot of the live games right now are kind of experimenting with that where you'll see like 
one person will be hired to write a given character that they're introducing. I find that very cool. I think it better represents, I guess, the scope of the world and, and the characters if you have really different perspectives kind of coming together within that. That seems like that would be really useful when it comes to things like writing dialogue, right? So, for example, if you're writing a novel, there's a risk that all of your characters sound like they speak in exactly the same way. But I guess if you want characters to talk differently, then that makes perfect sense. I find it with myself when I'm in charge of something, I have to make sure that though I'm writing in different character voices, right, that's something everybody has to do, there are still those little idiosyncrasies that you don't even realize you have where you think, oh, this expression is super common and everybody uses it. But you realize, no, that just comes from your understanding of it or you use it a lot of the time. And so your characters kind of start using those terms. And I find myself more and more like looking back and going, okay, I have to <laughs> make sure that this tiny little clue isn't there. You started working on Assassin's Creed Valhalla at the beginning of 2019. So what did your work look like when you started and how did it change over the next couple of years? The hard thing with things like this is always that the answer sounds bad, but it's like you, <laughs> it scopes differently, right? You, you kind of come onto the project going like, I think this is how it's going to look and I think this is what I'm going to do with it. And then as the realities of shipping or, you know, certain restrictions or certain things that change and, and, and you end up kind of shaping it into what it is today. So I think that initially there was a lot more narrative design that I was doing versus writing. And it ended up being a more, you know, predominantly writing project. My responsibility was largely the parts of the story and the ecosystem that occurs in the settlement. Mm. And weirdly, the separate thing from that is also did all the flighting uh, which are all the kind of like the, the poetry battles that you do. And weirdly enough, that was one of the first things I did that actually made it in the game exactly as as it began. Like we were challenged with saying, oh, we want to have like a a poetry battle. And I thought, yeah, I need to, I need to get in on this. Yeah, I was delighted to learn that you worked on the flighting aspect because that is one of my favorite parts of the game. So how did that work then? Did they, basically the higher ups were like, we've decided there's going to be poetry battles, you figure out how it works? Well, funnily enough, it was one of the things that I think, one of, another, another writer and the narrative director had kind of, they wanted to have it in the game. They knew that it was something that was fun about like Viking culture and back in the day, they wanted to kind of have that in there somewhere, but they weren't sure about the design and how it would work. And they'd kind of tried a couple different things. There was one point where it was going to be all investigative. Like in order to fight with them, you would have to kind of say, okay, I'm going to look at them. I'm going to look at, at their environment. I'm going to see if I can get some clues about how to insult them. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a version that was that. And then I kind of, at the time was like, I think that the way to go might be to take inspiration from like, Thinking about the investigation, take inspiration from uh, Monkey Island and the insult sword fighting, which for me was one of the biggest things that I, I enjoyed doing as a kid because I was like, this is so different from fighting, but it feels so satisfying to get it right. And so a lot of that was inspirational. So I, I wrote up a quick design that was just like, you're going to have to get rhyming and cadence to make it a little more challenging. And then we just set out that model. I think in the end I did 16 flightings all a little bit differently themed and they're very silly. They're an extremely silly thing that I remember at the time going like, there's no way they're going to let me put this in the game. It's very dumb. But <laughs> in the end, they, yeah, it, it ended up being really, really successful. And I'm, I'm delighted with it because it's, it's something that I can say about that game that I said from start to finish, I put something in that actually worked. It's really interesting that you compare the flighting to combat 
because obviously a thing that holds games back in the popular imagination is the reliance on combat and conflict. And I'm interested in your perspective as a as a writer and somebody who's interested in storytelling, if you have many thoughts on ways that we can take what is so compelling about conflict and turn it into something that's a little less physical. Yeah, I think that there's something to me that's intriguing about the conflicts that we have, like I, I've never been in a fist fight, you know. I, but I've had a ton of conflict. I've had conflict with people, conflict with things, conflict with, you know, myself. And I'm always interested in how you can kind of ratchet up that tension in a way without actually having it be a fight. And it's interesting to me when you look at other movies. Like, there's plenty of movies that aren't action but have the same amount of tension. Your heart still pounds. So <laughs> I'm always happy, not to say that flighting does this, but I'm always happy to find other ways to go like, oh, I have to face this challenge. And especially on Assassin's Creed, one of the things that we dealt with and one of the reasons that we kind of had to pare down the settlement was that so many of the quests that you want to do with your friends and your you know, allies in the settlement, you don't want to necessarily have to fight in them, but we don't have a lot of other tools in our mm. toolbox, right? So things like flighting, things like searching, things like solving mysteries is, is kind of the way that as writers and narrative designers, we work around that. We say, okay, we only have a, a limited amount of interactions with the world that are like, you know, look, collect, punch, kill, like it's, and then it goes right into immediate violence. But I think there's a fun challenge in saying, okay, what could this interaction be that doesn't rely on the same amount of tools? That's really interesting. The settlement aspect of the game is definitely something that I was really interested by. And I've heard other critics say that they felt like it didn't quite fulfill its potential. Like, I guess maybe they were hoping for more and that kind of fell outside the the scope of the game. Like you said, the verbs that an Assassin's Creed game gives you are limited. There's always that battle between what you can get in the game, especially a game of that size and what you can't. And I think early on, there were some ambitions that were around just saying, okay, how can we really make these characters shine and give them each like something to do and give them each, you know, a lot more quest wise. But ultimately you can either add more characters or you can deepen the ones that you have. And I think that the balance was, was struck to kind of lean more heavily on building it out so that it creates like an experience of newness every time you get someone new or mm. every time you get a new activity versus say like with like a Rowan and Yan Lee who you meet at the beginning, like we can tell their story more deeply. I would, I would love to have done that, but I also love that I have other people to work with, you know? It's that balance that you strike. And I think it's always weird because I think people are so hesitant to talk about things like this and to talk about like what didn't necessarily go right. But like when I say it, I'm not going, oh, it, it sucks now. I'm saying, yeah, of course there were things that I would have wanted to include. And of course, it's sometimes you read a news article and you go like, ah, we did have that and we had to cut it. You know, like I see that all the time. But I think the more that we offer, I guess, some transparency into it, the more I offer some insight, I think the better people will understand. Because I do want people to know, like, yeah, that thing that you're missing, we did want to have it, but for these restrictions, we weren't able to. So maybe on the next go, maybe, you know, next time we're going to pass the torch to the next Assassin's Creed, whatever that is. <laughs> and they might go, okay, we're going to take some of those designs that we didn't get to use and use them here. So nothing to me is lost, you know? And I don't think that the game is bad or really harmed by it. It has a lot of stuff that we ended up getting because we had to cut other things, you know? So Valhalla is the 12th, I think, core game in the Assassin's Creed series. That sounds likely. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So yeah, a, a long history and, you know, players come into it with loads of ideas of, of what to expect. And presumably Ubisoft has kind of really nailed down exactly the process of making one of these games. So as a writer coming onto one of these projects, what are the kind of rules that you have to follow? What are the restrictions that you have? I think there's there's a voice to it, right? I think this is the narrative director on this one was Darby McDevitt, who definitely comes in with a voice that's his own, that is one that, you know, we have to respect while we do that. It's not to say we have to write exactly like him, mm. but there's going to be like, oh, okay, this kind of sound is what we want from the world and has to be cohesive. And I think there's also, you know, there are certain ingredients that you need to have where it's like, there has to be this kind of journey. There has to be, you know, the presence of the Templars who are not yet established in our universe, but there's going to be, you know, a predecessor we're going to see the beginnings of the assassin's order and i think that that's if i'm being completely honest i really like that aspect of it i I like that way that we get to explore a character and a world and because we're so deep into the franchise now it only needs tiny ingredients to kind of tie it back right there's enough of a a world there's enough of an ecosystem that we can kind of say okay we're going to be part of that without having to be beholden to everything that came before Mm. and the first Assassin's Creed's, like the Ezio and Altair games, are some of my favorites, like of all time. And so, I absolutely love like the deep Assassin's Creed lore that we get in those. But I, I don't think we could always do that. I think that that franchise, which already is so big, and I think you know can't help but sometimes get accused of that like franchise fatigue. I think it's best to keep moving in a character-focused direction rather than just go, okay, we have to tell the story of the Assassin's Creed. Now, I obviously had a particular interest in Valhalla because it's set in the UK, right, where I live. And, you know, it's it's during this period where the, the Vikings were coming over. So what was specific to this game? What were you given that was new for this entry that you could play with? I think for myself, it was like a lot of the settlement stuff. It was mm. the ability to kind of make this a hub and to have characters from all around who don't necessarily have to have a connection to the main character initially. It's not that we have to say, okay, how does this person know Eivor? How does this person... All you can do now is say, okay, they showed up at this place and they have a story. And that's really, really fun. And then the other thing that I think is still really, really brilliant about the game is that it has a linear story, right? And I contribute to a lot of that because it takes place a lot of it at the settlement but every territory has its own arc so you can walk away (laughs) from the game for a while and still go back and say okay i'm gonna go to gloucester now i'm going to go to grant bridge i'm gonna go to like leicester i'm gonna go all these places london and experience something new a set of characters in a different tone even And what that, I think, allowed is that writers had more control over their own territory, even Mm -hmm. if they didn't necessarily have control over the main plot. So while Darby and the leads might determine the course of the main game, a lot of the side stories were devised by individual writers who can say, okay, I want mine. Um, There's Olivia Alexander who worked on Grant Bridge, and and she created this great murder mystery, or was murder mystery style plotline, rather. And as you go through that, there are lines and there are twists that I absolutely know, like, oh, that's her. And it's very cool that, you know, within the space of Eivor's story, she gets to kind of tell this little side story, and that goes for everybody. You've worked on these huge Ubisoft titles, like Assassin's Creed. You're working on this smaller indie game, Goodbye Volcano High. You worked on on Neocab as well. Different sizes, different genres. Do you think there's a common thread that runs through your writing in all of those games? I think... It's funny because I think there must be, but it's so hard to discern. <laughs> like, I would imagine that if I said to somebody, okay, play these sections, these like these cinematics in 
Assassin's Creed, play this flighting, look at, you know, whenever like Suicide Squad exists, look at Neocab, look at Sable, look at all these things that I've worked on or I'm working on. And there's probably some commonalities that I think appear probably in a sense of humor that I, I try to bring to things, even when they're not um, <laughs> necessarily meant to be super funny. I like that lightness. I like that fun. And I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's probably something, but it's so hard to see right now. And I think given all of the work that I'm doing right now or, or, or on things that are still coming out, it's going to be the chance, at least for myself, to see at one time the most games I've ever worked on <laughs> over the course of a couple of years. Like in around 2022, I have a feeling I'll have a better sense of where I'm at and what I've done because I'll be able to look back and go, okay, here's a comedy game. Here's a game written primarily in prose. Here's a game where it's all really, really serious. Here's something that's, you know, a little more whimsical. Here's this game that I narrative directed and didn't actually write. Like I'm going too fast and I think I'm too deep in it right now to even analyze it. But I think that I, I like to think I'm getting better. I think that's what I can say. I think I'm getting better at it with every project that I work on. You talked there about a certain lightness and humor to your writing and, and the idea of, of comedy in games is something that really interests me. And you mentioned Monkey Island earlier when you were talking about the flighting in Assassin's Creed and that being an inspiration. And I think people have this idea that those kinds of adventure games with joke, 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 joke are the only way that you can make a game funny. But presumably, and maybe assuming a lot here, you have a lot of other ideas of how you can make games funny. I think for me, I'm I'm a big fan like of kind of like a, a clever or uh, an interplay between, between characters. And I think there's a lot of humor to be found in the space between the character and the player. So even in, you know, an Assassin's Creed, which I'll go to because it's, now it's on the top of my head, <laughs> like there are moments where Eivor, the character, and even the person that she's talking to is not in on the joke. <laughs> but it's funny to the player because we see what a ridiculous situation they're in while they take it deadly seriously. You know, like, and I think there's a, a couple moments where it's just like a look of bemusement on Eivor's face at someone doing something, or there's a moment where, where Ranvi, who's, she's Sigurd's wife, is what I'll say about her, and, and she comments on how brooding Eivor is, and, and I think that she comments that, like, how would I act like you? Would I brood and stare dramatically into the middle distance? Like, something like that. And for me, that's... A f it's a funny commentary because it's probably something the player has thought, but Eivor never would. And mm. so things like that, for me, are ways that you can add a little bit of humor to something that's otherwise very, very serious. Whereas something like, if you've seen the trailer for Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, that's more outright funny, and it's been really, really fun and really, really rewarding to work on a game where it's like, our aim is to be funny. And to do it in such a way that isn't you know, disrespectful or doesn't feel too silly. It, it feels like clever and, and the team's really behind it. So that's, yeah. And even, honestly, even Neocab has moments where I think, oh, I'm laughing at something that is relatable to me that the characters don't realize or will not realize until later is very funny. <laughs> when you are considering whether or not to work on a game, what are the deciding factors for you? Like, do you look for specific genres or team sizes? Do you have a preference for new IP over sequels? Like, would you turn down a role if they wanted to bring you on too late in development, for example? I think the the place where I'm currently at and with Sweet Baby and with the team that we have is I think we look for stuff that is... One, if it's interesting to us, if it's just like straight up, like we just like this idea, we think we can bring something to it, we'll do it. But otherwise, I really want to bring 
value to places where I wouldn't wouldn't ordinarily think we could do something different. So there are a couple things, and I can't necessarily name them right now as a result of NDAs, but like <laughs> if someone will bring me to a franchise that exists and say, hey, here's where we're at. We want to do something a little bit different. Can we have that conversation? And whether that conversation is an hour or a year of like of working together, the challenge of saying, okay, how can we change this either this really big or really fixed IP into something different is equally exciting to me as something that's like brand new, we're going to bring it. So I tend to choose, therefore, by talking to the people involved and seeing how I think we'd work together. I think in this industry, it's more important to me to work on a team that I like than to work on a project that is necessarily like, oh, that's exactly my thing. Mm. I find that in, in any industry where we have to work together for, for months to years, right? <laughs> a game can take between two and six years to come to fruition. I want to like the people that I'm there with. I want to respect them and I want to know that I'm bringing them value and, and they are appreciating that and that they're bringing something to my team and I'm I'm feeling like I'm involved. I'm feeling like I'm supported. I'm feeling like I can support them. So I think it really does become this like, not a family necessarily, but like at least a community, right? You have your writer's rooms on anywhere that becomes this nice space for you. I think of Rocksteady, right? Rocksteady is one of the clients that I've worked with the most over the past year and a half. And they got me through the, some of the hardest times of my life where we would just sit in a, in a, you know, a little tea and biscuits call in the morning and say, how was your day? And they saw me through, like, I, I, I went through a really tough year beyond just the pandemic and everything. I lost my father last year and it was really good to have the support of the people that I really care about, <laughs> you know? So yeah, that's always my preference is to find teams where I think we can make something fun together, even if the end product is super serious or super small. Yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that, by the way. And glad you had people. Yeah, I, I'm super lucky. And I I have a great network of friends and family to help me out. And then also, yeah, also at work, like the teams that I, I work with, I value that more than, yeah, more than anything. And the fact that they're also all the teams that I'm currently working with are also hugely talented. It's just like <laughs> a bonus. You mentioned their NDAs, uh, so non-disclosure agreements that you have to sign usually when you're working on a game. Uh, and I saw on your LinkedIn profile that you've got a few unannounced, unreleased titles listed. Does that ever frustrate you? Like if you're applying for work and you think, oh, this other game that I've worked on would be a really great example to show my experience, but I can't talk about it. I, I do hate the NDA aspect of it. What's especially weird is that like as a contractor, because we, you know, we always work on different things. There are times when a learning from team X would be really beneficial to team Y. <laughs> and I can't say that <laughs> you know, I can't because you have to like, you know, I, I have to maintain that level of secrecy. So there's sometimes when I go like, hey, here's a technique that I can share, but it's hard not to be able to just go, okay, look, here's what I'm doing here's what I want you to know. And I think I would look forward to a future at some point where we can behave a little bit more like the, the film industry, mm. which is to say, hey, we're working on this thing. We're not going to reveal the story of it or how it works, but I'd love to be able to say earlier on, like you can expect this game to exist and here's you know who we're working with. Here's who we want to cast for this thing. Like it always comes out at once, right? At the end, it's like there's a big announcement push and for like five days... <laughs> after the game comes out, everyone's like, 
I worked on this. I worked on this. I did a voice on this. I helped direct this. I wrote a thing for this. I did a music for this. And I do wish that there was a longer lead up period so that we could, you know, ask people, how are you doing? How is this project going? How is your experience right now? Because if I was working on a big AAA, like licensed game from, you know, some film or something, I would love to be able to halfway through the process say, okay, here's where we're at. Here are the struggles of making a game like this. Mm. How can I help? How can other people help me? How can I crowdsource this information? How can it be more of a group project? Like it's so, it's so rare even to say, hey, here are the lessons that we're learning as we're learning them. Mm. But instead, everything's a postmortem, you know, and it's, I don't love that way. I want to feel like I'm working on a group project with a lot of people. And especially in, you know, in isolation, I wish we lived in a world where I could do co-working with writers from other projects. You know, I wish that I could say, hey, like I need somebody's eyes on this scene. And fortunately within Sweet Baby, we kind of have that because we're all within one company. We're all within one like consultancy. So I could say, hey, Ari, can you look at this? Or like she can kind of punch up my lines or I can punch up hers or we can kind of do that because we're together. But it's something that in the greater industry I wish would exist because I see so many people, especially now, especially in narrative who are working so alone. Mm. They don't have that like, hey, can I just grab you for a coffee and hang out and take a break? So being able to to drop those NDAs and say, okay, I'm working on a scene. Can you help me? And I'm sure it's happening, right? Like, you're, <laughs> I'm sure that it's happening casually with like friend DAs and stuff. But I wish that it didn't have to be a secret. I wish that people could just go like... I'm struggling on a scene from, you know, Assassin's Creed. Can you, who's working on something from like the Elder Scrolls franchise, come and sit in a room with me and we'll both help each other out. So you co-founded Sweet Baby Inc., your narrative development company back in 2018. What was your goal or mission back then and, and how has it changed or developed since? We found it initially because we were thinking about creating a little project and we wanted to have like a, a setup for it. Mm. And I started working kind of as a freelancer using Sweet Baby with my best friend, Ari. And we met Dibe, David Bedard, who we had kind of like tendentially worked with at Ubisoft and we were all out of Ubisoft at the time. And we said, you've got a great narrative instinct. We all kind of have a similar taste. We all have like similar but disparate skills, kind of like a Venn diagram um, <laughs> of skills. And more than anything, I think we really wanted to work on as many different things as we could to kind of like expand our experience and to be able to touch as many projects as we wanted. And why we decided to do a company instead of just kind of going into the world as, you know, three freelancers or kind of like a more of a writing team is that the other thing that we wanted to change was the profound lack of diversity that we saw in the industry and that we experienced, especially for, you know, for myself and Ari. We want to be able to bring our voice to the narratives that we're working on. And I was called into a project early on, just before like we really officialized Sweet Baby. And I was asked to help because they wanted to tell like an Afrofuturist story. And I said, okay, I can help you with that. But who is your writing team? Like, do you have other black people on your writing team besides myself? And they said, no, we couldn't find any. And I said, really? Like, you couldn't find it? They said, yeah, everyone we found was too junior or blah, 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 like didn't have enough experience. And I said, okay, so why not hire the juniors? And the answer, of course, was, well, we need to take time to train them. We don't really have that investment time. So I said, okay, what if I subcontracted them 
I helped train them and make sure that their work was good. And then we produced something that you would get as a client that had the work of a team of people who could bring an authentic voice to it. And you didn't have to train them. That mm. was handled on my side. So that kind of became the secondary goal of Sweet Baby to say, how can we get you know more marginalized folks into the industry in a way that supports them, pays them, and gets them a credit on something? And so kind of that confluence of things, that like mix of, hey, we want to do narrative development, and also we want to do representation and diversity, we kind of wanted to package into something that you know, is, is now what we do full time. So at any given time, we're working on probably between eight and 12 games collectively and, you know, in different capacities. Like some people just want, hey, how can we do representation better? Other places say, hey, we need an entire script for a game. Other places say, hey, we need narrative direction or whatever it is. And we can kind of fill those different roles and, and do that. But overall now, I think what I see the future for us being is that like, growing team of people who are coming in, getting training on the job, helping us with projects, getting a credit, getting cash. And then, you know, the companies get a really bang up narrative team and, you know, some marginalized folks who might otherwise not be able to, you know, get those gigs will have a way in. And that's it. And we have kind of a a philosophy around that, which is that it is innovation in itself to add more representation to a game. If you are telling new stories, if you are getting new voices, if you are experiencing, you know, new characters and exploring new worlds that are influenced by authentic cultures and, and, you know, a diverse group of people, that is a form of innovation. You are changing the face of games and we need to respect that more and I think, you know, uplift that more. So that's what we kind of want to do. So on the subject of diversity and representation, I watched your talk for Women Eyes and I was particularly interested in a discussion that happened during the Q&A about writing marginalised characters with intention rather than pretending that we live in a world where, for example, quote, people don't see colour. So I I saw a talk years ago by another games writer who said that her trick for writing well-rounded, diverse characters is to write them all as white men and then change their race or gender afterwards, basically so as to avoid allowing her own unconscious bias to impose limitations on what those characters can be. And I wonder if you think that those two approaches are in conflict. I would say for me, yes, (laughs) because because I think that if you write them all as white men, you are writing them all as white men. That is not, it's not bias-free, right? Your bias is now leaning towards that. And the experience of being a black woman is not the same. Like my experience is not the same as, as a white man. And I think that it works as far as, you know, I think that's a story about Alien that Ripley was originally written as a dude. And that sometimes works. Like it sometimes works, but I think it's only in cases when there's no reason that that person was a white man Mm. where you go, would it be more interesting if we saw this? Would it be different if we saw this? And that's how we can kind of come at it. But for me, if I were to write everyone as a white man, I think I would be denying the experience of a lot of people. Because if I say, Hey, I'm going to write this as a white man having an interaction with police officers in the game, and I'm just going to change it into a black man. That is immediately false. You know, I use that example, which is not to say that it always has to be in forms of conflict. It does not always have to be in like, oh, we have to show how bad it is to be a marginalized person. By that same token, we can say, oh, what's the difference when, you know, two trans women meet each other in a room full of of cis people, right? There is a, a kinship among the marginalized that we won't get if we just say, you know, these two people greet each other the same way that 
two cis white dudes are going to greet each other. It's not the same. And I think that we're going to be missing out on that if we, we choose to just kind of think of race or ethnicity as a shader. You know, like it has to be something that comes from a, a real place. And I am not defined by being a cis black straight woman, but I am informed by it. You know, my experience as a cis woman is not going to give me perspective on what it is to be a trans woman. I am not going to have the experience of, you know, a an indigenous person in certain places that I will have as a black person and they will not have the same experience as, as I will. And so, yeah, I would much rather, I think, come in and say this person is going to be informed by them. And then if I have to talk to consultants, if I have to get another writer in, I'll do that as long as the authenticity is there. So something else that came up in the Q&A is about change happening from the inside of big game studios. And you talked about diversity initiatives within companies like that as you kind of describe them as frustrated people given a small budget to be frustrated together, um, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> that, sorry, I, I don't remember that. It is really funny. <laughs> How has that perception affected the work that you do with, with Sweet Baby? Well, one thing that we learned specifically about Canada is that like, if you want to have visas and bring employees in, one of the ways that you can kind of counterbalance that for the government and for tax reasons and, and for visa reasons is to offset it by saying, we have a diversity committee, we have a uh, lunch and learn program, we have stuff like that. And I learned that the other day. And I think that a lot of the time, that's the mood in which people are creating these diversity committees. It's like, well, we have to have one. And if we have one, it's an automatic fix. So the people who are in charge of it, give it like, you know, ten dollars and say here you go good luck have a diversity committee now i'm good now we are a good company who cares about diversity uh-huh. and they don't actually care about the work that is involved and so the people in that yeah again they don't have enough budget they can't actually do anything and that's i think that's why i advocate so much for diversity as part of design as part of narrative i don't ever enjoy coming into something that's already formed that's already like hey we have this script it's got some racist stuff in it. Can you cut it out? <laughs> because that to me is just like, yeah, I'm making your script less offensive, but I'm not making it more representative or better. And I'd much rather do that, you know? And so the way that I kind of explain it sometimes is if you hire me or if you hire our team to come in and help on your game, we're going to write the hell out of it. <laughs> and we're also going to be mindful of representation. It's not two separate jobs. You know, it's not like you have to hire me to write your script. And then if you pay me extra, I'll take all the racial, <laughs> like problematic stuff out of it. Like, I'm not going to secretly plant like offensive words. <laughs> and so I think that's it. It's like, if we start thinking of representation as innovation, if we start thinking of diversity as means of improving our product, if we start thinking of, you know, our responsibility to a diverse narrative being the responsibility of the team instead of one consultant, I think that's how we actually move things forward because the amount of the amount of offensive stuff that I've seen cut is huge, but I have not seen enough stuff added to games as a result of, of consultants. And that's why I think, okay, my job then is to try to do it before we have to hire a consultant. Does your work with Sweet Baby also reflect a desire to move away from the phenomenon where people of marginalized backgrounds, you know, women, people of color, especially women of color, start diversity initiatives and then they kind of 
burn bright for a couple of years and get burnt out, but, you know, because you've worked in the industry a long time, you've managed to stick around. Is that because of the way you approach this? I think it, it probably, I mean, one, I think I still have the energy. I'm 35 and I think I'm still, I'm still in that spot where I've been at this for about eight years and I consider the diversity and representation work so necessary as a part of me that being able to actually channel that frustration, that anger, that that conflict into my work and into something that is like actually improving projects is one is super rewarding and it gives me the energy to continue. But more than that, 90 to 95% of our work is pure narrative informed by representation. And so people are slowly starting to say, okay, we want to hire you ahead of time. We want to say, can you help us develop something that, you know, helps these characters shine and adds to them instead of taking away at the end. And, and I do think that energy wise, it is helpful to kind of combine what is, I think one of my, my core values, which is representation and authenticity with my passion, which is storytelling and that. So it kind of a balance of that kind of helps keep me sane. <laughs> You can keep up with Kim's work by following her on Twitter at Bagel of Death and follow her narrative development company at Sweet Baby Inc. on both Twitter and Instagram to find out about upcoming Q&As and free workshops. We're also on Twitter at Talking Sim Pod and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jerrica Weber. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at Jazz Mickle. Talking Simulator is edited by Lemmington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C. Parks. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. It's been an interesting week. I had my most popular tweet this week about a restaurant that I I really love in, in town. The Chinese restaurant. Yes. I saw it in a <laughs> newsletter. That's very funny. <laughs> but the, the interesting thing about it is that it, because it's made Twitter a little bit unusable for me, mm-hmm. I've just leaned into that. I've been like, perfect. I can't really use Twitter, I guess. <laughs>